if you can't get to a tenant request right away, I mean, at least acknowledge that you heard them so that it doesn't seem like, well, they don't care that you know got back to me. I mean, you could be doing all kinds of stuff behind the scenes, but if they don't know you know about it, then they have a perception that you're you're just kind of asleep at the wheel. It is a common saying amongst real estate investors that you make money when you buy, not when you sell. While this catchy phrase has value, it fails to convey how easy it is to lose money through poor property management. Whether you self-manage or hire a professional, it is important to understand how to navigate the common pitfalls and challenges with rental properties without losing your shirt or your mind. That's why you have tuned in to Maximizing Your Property Value, the apartment owner's guide to operating rental properties as a successful business. I'm your host, John Stiles, real estate agent and team leader of the VIP Real Estate Group at Bridge Realty. As a current multifamily investor and former property manager myself, I understand the headaches and difficulties of keeping an investment property from becoming a money pit and time sucker. It takes a solid business plan, it takes tested systems, and it takes key team members to actually find success. So let's take a deep dive and maximize your property value. Welcome back everybody to another episode of Maximizing Your Property Value. I am excited that you have joined us today. I'm excited to introduce my guest today, which is Justin Hennick with Lynnhurst Holdings. Justin, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, John. And uh, Justin, uh, why don't you take a moment to tell the audience a little bit about yourself as an investor and how you got into real estate? Sure. I am a pretty busy guy. Among other things, I am a real estate investor, uh, Lynnhurst Holdings. I'm also a realtor, a multifamily realtor. I am a self-managing investor. So we've had rental property since about 2006. This is when I first got in, uh, basically house hacked a, uh, a duplex in South Minneapolis, bought it vacant, uh, foreclosure, uh, bought it from the bank and uh, it needed all the appliances. It needed a lot of work. Um, I basically felt like, uh, you know, that mortgage payments come around the corner. So I, I was working 20 hours a day with my day job and rehabbing this house. And I didn't know how to rehab a house. So um, luckily, I came across a guy walking down the street that was literally Bob Vila in, from my neighborhood. And he agreed to kind of help me, you know, learn some of those things and help me with the rehab. And uh, before the... You know, mortgage payment was due. We had renters in there in the three bedroom. I lived in the two bedroom. Um, so this was a duplex. It was a duplex, correct? And uh, yeah, uh, that was kind of how I started. Um, realized that you can live for extremely cheap. Obviously, living expenses are most people's most expensive expense. And uh, you know, when you can own a multi hundred thousand dollar property for a few hundred bucks a month. This kind of is a head scratcher, um, kind of a eureka moment. And so decided to do that more. And bring us up to today, uh, we have a fairly modest portfolio um, <laughs> compared to a lot of folks. Um, we had nine units just uh, up until about November, and we sold one. It was a single family house that we owned free and clear. And um, I thought by now I'd probably be sitting around 40 units. We had we had a 30 unit outside of town under contract and um, 
decided to pass on it for various reasons. So I think within the next few months, we should be up to somewhere between 35 and 40 unit portfolio. Yeah, so you're in an expansion mode. Uh, you had a good experience with your rental so far. Um, what what type of properties are you particularly looking for? Mostly multifamily, right? Yeah, at this point, all multifamily. We've done a few rehabs or kind of kind of flips, but not exactly. More, you know, purchase, rehab, rent, and then uh, you know, sell after one year and a day to make it long-term capital gains as opposed to uh, regular income, uh, just for a tax advantage. But um, but yeah, to answer your question specifically, we're looking for um, a, a B or C class, multifamily properties, uh, 16 units or above, um, trying to you know get seven plus cap rate within about 45 minutes of the Twin Cities. And um, we're also kind of looking at potentially mixed use, but something that has you know residential multifamily involved, and uh, you know really. So we ha we owned this single family house free and clear, so our, our return on equity was was not that good when you have 100% equity. So the idea was to sell and uh, you know get into something that's that's more levered, you know maybe a 80% LTV, 75% LTV, so we're three or four xing uh, our our investment, which is you know one of the most powerful parts I think of real estate investing as an asset class, and. Um, so yeah, hopefully the next time I'm on or the next time we talk, we'll have something under contract or hopefully close that uh, you know is gonna three to four x our, our portfolio. Yeah, wonderful. So one of the things that we try to focus in on in this show is the management plan and the the business planning to having rental properties because there's a lot of focus out there about finding the deal or selling the deal, but there's not as much focus on managing the property and I, I think that's where you investors are either made or, or broke is is in the management as you think about Definitely. your experiences with your properties that you've had so far how has um what are maybe some systems or processes in your business that you've been able to implement sure yeah i mean obviously you know maximizing your income and reducing your expenses is really the name of the game uh, particularly when people get into commercial, if you're talking multifamily, that'd be a five plus unit building and, uh, you know, maximizing your net operating income so that the value is, is maximized. Um, with, you know, the first set of properties really that we've been dealing with and really all we have right now are, you know, uh, we have a triplex, two duplexes, and, uh, and we had two single families. Now we're down to one. Um, so, you still kind of try to do the same things, but really the valuations are all based on uh, comps instead of uh, what the NOI and, and, you know, what the prevailing cap rates are, right? So I think just speaking to my experience with, with the, the singles, which that's a fairly recent thing, um, but, you know, du two duplexes and a triplex before the singles came along, I would say... I mean, several things. Uh, we we transitioned from collecting checks to going to an electronic rent payment system, which completely automates everything. I mean, it feels great to drive to the bank and deposit those checks, 
But it feels just as good to get an email from your uh, service provider. We use eRentPayment.com. We've used them for, I don't know, eight or nine years now. Okay. And it feels just as good to see those emails say, okay, here's $700 here, $1,000 here. And it, you know, it shows every single tenant. Um, what's nice is you don't have to go chasing around checks. You don't have to drive to the bank. You don't have to remind anybody. Uh, it just happens, and and we kind of use a little bit of a carrot and stick approach to make sure people pay on time. So the carrot would be that everybody gets like a $15 discount if they pay by the first of the month. The stick would be there could plausibly be a, a late a late um, a late fee built in if they don't pay after the fifth. So in 14 years of owning rental property, we've never had anybody not pay, and we've only had one tenant pay late out of hundreds of tenants that we've had. So I think you know, if passes prologue, we've been pretty well so far in kind of using that and then implementing some automation, I guess, in with, uh, with e-rent payment, just as one example. Yeah. I know that... Uh... What you just covered here with the automatic payments is a great uh, use of technology and streamlining the process. Have you had any tenants that like are slow to adopt this or maybe do you even allow cash or checks? So we've never had anybody say no to it. I think most people are, are glad to have that as an option. We don't charge the tenants for that service. Um, I mean, it's fairly inexpensive. We used to pay, I think, per tenant, and then once we got enough property, it's just kind of a flat rate. Um, and then, like, maybe plus $1 per tenant, so it's, we pay, I don't know, $30 a month or something like that. And to not have to chase cats or chase, you know, checks, essentially, and avoid having to drive to the bank and things like that, I mean, it's totally worth it, and it's a tax write-off, so... Um, but yeah, it, it's been a hundred percent adoption. Um, we've had a couple times where people haven't, uh, they haven't signed up soon enough and then we'll have to collect a check that next month. But generally speaking, they will, they sign the lease. We'll take checks for the initial, um, at least the security deposit and the, uh, and the first month's rent. And then we'll usually set it up the, the following month during the month. We'll send along. Uh, there's kind of like a, an invite email where there's a, a code that corresponds to the property and the unit, and then that sort of automates that it will flow through to the correct accounting, the correct uh, you know property, everything is set up correctly on their end. Um, so yeah, that's been really helpful. Great. And uh, it sounds like you are self-managing these properties, is that correct? True. Have you ever looked at hiring a 30-party manager, or have you always just wanted to do it yourself? Or? Yeah, you know, with with the property that we had under contract recently, um, you know, that was that was out of town a little ways. It was in a kind of a tertiary Twin Cities market. And I think for that, that particular scenario, we were looking into a property management company. I mean, it, you know, it was way more units, you know, over 30 units. Um, it was 45 minutes away and everything that we've owned, I mean, uh, property number one, I lived in. So that kind of made sense to just self-manage at that point. 
we bought our our second property uh, was a duplex uh, four blocks away from that one and then our triplex is five minutes from there in uptown so I, i've had kind of some you know mentors uh, other more seasoned you know long-term i guess career investors who you know, i've talked to over the years and a lot of people have said well if you're going to self-manage have it all within 10 minutes of your your house and then that way you know if, if you get that leaky toilet or you know a flood or something crazy going on in the middle of the night well first of all you know do i have a fire truck of course not so call the fire department <laughs> do i have a badge on like no um call the police if there's something that i can't deal with but if it's uh if it's something that's not an emergency i mean maybe you want to handle it and maybe at some point you would rather pay a plumber or you'd rather pay somebody else if it's not something you can handle yourself. So, um, I certainly digress a lot <laughs> to answer your question though, John. I mean, um, yeah, I think I, I've looked at it a little bit. I mean, if it's a small portfolio, I, I've always kind of been a person that believes in if you want it done right, do it yourself. Uh, but then I think once you scale at some point, uh, scale up enough, you almost have to have you know, put it in somebody else's hands. And hopefully they're open to the idea of, you know, maybe taking some of your best practices, some of the clauses you have in your lease that have helped save you money over time or have helped you avoid, you know, unnecessary expenses uh, and, and would be willing to adopt, you know, some of those best practices while turning that over to them eventually. Yeah. Is there a certain number a unit count that you feel like would be more than you can handle, even in the local, uh, you know, close by to you that you would look at hiring more? Yeah. So, so my wife, Ashley, uh, is super mom. We have three young kids at home. We have uh, three under five, a four and a half, a three and, a, and about a two month old at home. So she's she's very busy, and obviously the two month old is a fresh situation. But but even before uh, he came along, Ashley was doing a couple days a week handling our rental property stuff. Okay. And other than that, she's a stay at home mom and and handles things. And then uh, I've, I've got all my stuff going on outside the house. Um, so you know she's been able to pretty much handle our our nine units very efficiently. I think if we probably doubled that, then it would start to get a little more onerous and difficult. Um, where I think she would have to probably devote an additional, at least an additional day, maybe two per week, to handle it. And then at that point, when is when do you cut that off? When is the juice not worth the squeeze for <laughs> self-managing? Um, I, yeah, I'd say somewhere around probably twenty units. So it, it would get tough. Sure. But of course, that kind of comes back to your early question. You know, uh, have you thought about self-managing or not? I mean, if if everything is within a 10-minute driving distance, and the properties are in good condition, they're not, you know, they don't have a lot of deferred maintenance. Where you're going to have a lot more uh, rigorousness, I guess, with respect to repairs, then I think that can that can play a factor. Um, if everybody had brand new A-class buildings that never broke, and you know very well vetted tenants who always paid on time and everything was automated, you could probably do, you know, 50 to 100 units with just one person. So I think it just kind of depends on 
where <laughs> where the investors at, what the portfolio looks like, and things like that. Yeah, yeah, very good. Um, and then for the properties that you do have, and as you look to expand, uh, what processes have you and your wife kind of been able to develop to keep track of the move, different moving parts? For example, you know, property A has you know appliances that are X years old, and and property B has a, you know furnace that's X years old, and and different maintenance concerns that are going on, different tenant concerns. How, what do you use to keep everything kind of in line and, and keep track of it all. Sure, sure. Uh, you know, I think I think our portfolio is still modest enough to where we we haven't needed to really, you know, put it down on a spreadsheet or uh, you know build in reminders about a lot a lot of things. Uh, although timing is appropriate to talk about CRPs. I mean, CRPs are due in a couple of days, so. You know, we always have it down that CRPs have to happen about mid-January or thereabouts, or at least plan for it. Uh, send out the certificates of rent paid for for those of you who don't know what CRP is, um, and they're always due at the end of January for tax purposes, so that uh, tenants can use the rent they paid to get a little bit of a tax write-off. I believe it is. Um, whenever we renovate one of our units, we we typically will put in, you know like LG washers and dryers are usually pretty reliable. It kind of be like, um, you know, Toyota has the most reliable uh, vehicle brand. Uh, Toyota and Lexus, make both made by Toyota, are at the top. You know, Honda's really close. Uh, Nissan's up there. Infinity's up there. Acura's up there. Um, I think you can find that in appliances as well. So we try it, like, for our laundry machines, we... You know, we'll get those. Um, we'll try to do Bosch dishwashers, which are pretty bulletproof in our experience. And we generally buy those new unless we can find them on Craigslist uh, in, in good condition. And I found a Bosch dishwasher that was like three months old. They just decided they wanted a different color. It was like $75 and it was like a $900 dishwasher. So we put it in and haven't gotten a call on it. Um, so... You know, other than, yeah, just some of the, you know, tax time things and so forth, we haven't done a whole lot, but I think at some point, I mean, you know, if we buy 20, 30, 40 unit apartment building, um, we need to kind of have that in place. And maybe, you know, if it's, if it's um, kind of like a, a maintenance schedule in particular, that would be helpful. Does that sort of answer your question? Yeah, no, that's perfect. And, and, um, I think a maintenance schedule is important. I mean, taking account of the age of the different aspects of your properties and planning out and even budgeting for those things uh, as well, as they should be prepared for. So, I will add to that. It's kind of not exactly your question, but I think I think one of the biggest things that a landlord or a property owner needs to be cognizant of is what's a good percentage of the rent to put towards like a capex fund. Capital expenditures, you know, roof, windows, HVAC system, you know, uh, maybe, you know, I guess, arguably carpet and appliances and things like that. But, you know, the really big ticket items, I think sometimes, uh, especially newer investors who are, you know, just bought their, new, their first property, I mean, they don't really know what all the cost centers are. And I think to have that rainy day fund for when you need a new roof, when you need, 
you know, new gutters and you need um, maybe new windows, your furnace goes out, you know, stuff that can cost several thousand dollars. Chimneys, we've had a couple of chimneys that have had to be rebuilt from at least the roof line up are anywhere from three to $10,000. If you're not putting enough money aside, that money's all going to come out of pocket. You're not going to have that kitty kind of built up. And, you know, that can be even more expensive than having to buy a new refrigerator, a new appliance. Um, I think maybe even heard on your podcast, the, the rule of thumb I've always heard was if the appliance is like 10 years old, get a new one. I think Brian Doyle was even talking about that. But if it's, you know, less than that, maybe spending $100 or $150 on a, on a service call is not a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I know when I had my uh, roof replaced at my fourplex uh, just over a year ago, I really wasn't prepared for it financially. And so it's taken some time to kind of recoup. Recover from, a little bit. <laughs> from that huge yeah. expense. So definitely it's important to, to prepare. Take an assessment, you know, when you buy the property and then along several times along the way um, so that, you know, you're prepared for those expect those are expected uh maintenance items yeah so yeah nobody's that lucky where they won't have to uh and you know, unless you're buying it and selling it very quickly i think as a long-term buy and hold investor just has to go it is has to be baked into the numbers that you underwrite for figuring out what kind of returns you can make and and uh you know your cash on cash return and your internal rate of return and you know some of the the other data points and metrics that people look at to figure out how, how successful are these investments for us. Yeah. Well, let's take a moment to talk about our relationship with our tenants. And as you know, uh, tenants are the lifeblood of our properties. Without them, our properties would be pretty useless. Um, so how do you go about making sure that the, your tenants really enjoy living at your properties and they want to stay there as long as they can? Great question. My philosophy has always been that the, so so even though we have a very modest portfolio of, of nine, now eight, with selling the single family, um, everything that we've ever bought, we've always tried to have it be kind of playing towards the top of the market for rents. So, I mean, our, our units go from anywhere from about $1,800 up to $2,950, I'm going to say. Um, so the types of improvements that we've put into them, even in some cases have been nicer than what we have in our own house. Uh, for example, we, we took a two bedroom apartment uh, or, or unit in uh, triplex in Uptown in the wedge, uh, kind of in an area where you really can't over improve. I mean, you're competing with some really nice class A brand new condos and apartment buildings that have, you know, have bars in the main level and clubs and uh, workout facilities and, you know, uh, bike repair centers and dog washing services and all these things that are, you know, it's really hard to compete with. So we did some, uh, we did like heated floors in the bathroom. We did custom tile work. We put in, you know, nice Kohler fixtures, um, put in Nest thermostats. We put in uh, Philips Hue lighting that at, 11:59 a.m. on Sunday morning, you know, the Packers or Vikings colors will like suddenly 
pop through your apartment. Like there's all kinds of different things that don't really cost that much money, but make a huge impact. I think in the way of, uh, you know, smart lighting or smart, smart thermostats where people are willing to pay a little bit of a premium. And let's say the economy went sideways or, you know, the, the housing market went sideways, even in that scenario, you know, I think it'd be easier to attract people to what you have if, if you're just competing against average. So, so I would say the bullet points would be making decisions based on what you would want yourself and also being cost conscious about it so that you're not, you know, putting in amenities that are, uh, you don't get any ROI on. Keeping the units clean and uh, nice landscaping so that the exterior is attractive. Um, I think being responsive to people's needs and inquiries. Uh, you know, old properties in South Minneapolis are going to eventually get, you know, bugs. Maybe a mouse somehow finds its way in, something like that. I think just dealing with those kinds of issues quickly is paramount. And, you know, if if you can't get to a tenant request right away, I mean, at least acknowledge that you heard them so that it doesn't seem like, well, they don't care that, you know, got back to me. I mean, you could be doing all kinds of stuff behind the scenes, but if they don't know, you know about it, then they have a perception that you're you're just kind of asleep at the wheel. Yeah. So at, at a minimum, just getting back to somebody, you know, we, we typically try to keep it via email if we can, but we... We say, hey, we're you know we're open, we're available. If it's really time sensitive, you can text us. But uh, you know, despite some of the horror stories, we've never really gotten like a middle of the night, three a.m. leaky toilet or you know a clogged drain or something like that. Yeah. Fortunately, like knock on wood. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought it was interesting what you talked about. Um, as I've heard a lot of people say make sure that the property, that you'd be willing to live in the property yourself. But actually what you've done is made it better than your own property. So you're trying to attract, you know, kind of the best of the best in, in the tenant pool. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've also talked about um, not over-improving. So how do you make those decisions? How do you balance those two things? Yeah, I, I, think, I think that whole question kind of comes down to you got to ask yourself, where is the property located and what is the typical rent in that area? What does a typical unit look like? You know, I think if you're in, let's say, you know, uptown and you've got all these class A buildings coming in or you're in like the North Loop or you're in Northeast. I mean, those are like probably three of the, the hottest areas in the Twin Cities or I should say at least in Minneapolis right now. So our business is only in South Minneapolis. So we kind of we know a lot more about that market. I don't know as much about St. Paul or especially some of the suburbs and things like that, but you know, those, those areas I think will support uh, units that are, are improved um, substantially more than some other areas. And, and I'm not going to name any specific ones, but I mean, if you, I think if you look around and, and you see that, you know, the, the properties are very well kept and that the units are very well kept, and that you you know how competitive things are, you know if people are lining up to get into your place and they see the the professional pictures that you've taken, uh, you've had a you know professional photographer come in and and uh, capture what they look like. They're nicely staged. They're clean when they see them. 
they, uh, you know, you're not overcharging for the units and you've got basically a lineup of people, then I think you've probably made some pretty good decisions. And yeah, what, what can the neighborhood support? I think is the big thing. Um, if I had to quantify the types of improvements that I would spend the money on and I would recommend to do, I think bathrooms and kitchens, no question. Um, you know, we've replaced some, you know, laminate countertops in the past and, and, and a lot of granite ones too, and some quartz ones. And I would put granite in anything because, uh, at the end of it, you know, you still have to pay for the, the labor and the install on a laminate countertop and your cost all in isn't really that much more money, but to be able to have those sort of trigger points on your listing, like granite, stainless steel, hardwood floors, you know, uptown, South Minneapolis, like some of those things that are kind of what people are willing to spend more money on. I think that's a good investment. Sure. Um, yeah, so understanding the market that your property is in and, you know, going after what the, the market will bear in terms of that. That's great. Yep. Um, one other question I have related to uh, our tenants is um, some people approach the relationship with the tenants as I, I want to stay anonymous as an owner. I want I want nothing to do with them. And other people are, you know, don't, don't mind. Um, I assume... You know, since you're self-managing, you do have uh, a level of uh, interaction with your tenants. So what is your mindset about um, interacting with tenants? Yeah, you definitely assume correctly. We, you know, we're on a first-name basis with everybody that rents from us. And, uh, yeah, I, I've heard of people that, you know, they'll, they'll go to the ends of the earth to try to make it impossible to figure out who the owner is. You know, the, the property will be in an LLC. Uh, you know, you can go to the the Minnesota Secretary of State website, you can't find any names under it. Like you would have to probably go down to the city and look at what's been recorded and who is part of that, that company, right? Um, I guess as self-managers, you know, who would really want to risk being found out that uh, you actually own the property, but you're posing as the property manager or you know, being able to say, well, you know, the management has these policies. I guess you could always hide behind a policy, but I mean, frankly, your policy is going to be in your, uh, it's going to be in your lease. It, you know, maybe you have like a, like a property or a house rules kind of a uh, accessory document that they can read through and see, okay, I live in a multifamily property. I probably shouldn't have people over on the weekend past 10 p.m., unless I let the other people living under this roof know about it. You know, just some basic common sense. Um, I think for maybe landlords or, or investors who, you know, own bigger properties, obviously, you know, like, uh, I don't know, just drop a couple names, like Kleinman is a big one. You know, they're, they're doing, you know, 10 plus unit apartment buildings. Kleinman gets all the calls. Kleinman, those guys are, you know, they have their staff handling it. The owners never get those calls. They never interact, but, I guess for a self-manager, yeah, I would, I would be all about full transparency and, you know, I think, I think being upfront with people shows a mutual level of respect and it also kind of helps with um, people's satisfaction level, which in turn means people stick around longer. They're more willing to, you know, 
take a take a rent increase if it's justified and uh which is something else i i wouldn't mind talking about too just as kind of a tip for investors out there yeah well go ahead i mean we're in an environment where rents are going up um and they're becoming un unaffordable for some people mm -hmm. um how, how are you approaching it yeah that's a good question um yeah there, there's there's no question about it that that uh you know rents are going up um i just saw an article today that i think uh Todd Dexheimer actually shared it on LinkedIn, and it had to do with um, the fact that you know student loans are are so onerous for some people, and it's been tough for people to be able to to afford buying a house uh, just to get out from underneath their student loan debt, and you know perhaps that's a reason why there's so many renters and not as many people buying. So it's kind of I think that's a little bit of a vicious cycle. Um, you know, who knows what will happen in the future. It's possible with, you know, Minneapolis in particular uh, in the 2040 plan, making the whole city zoning now triplex. Uh, it's just coming around the corner, I think, that people are going to start building tons of triplexes. Uh, they'll probably make it easier for people to have what they consider hidden density, where you can have like a accessory dwelling unit in your garage. You can build that out. You know, you don't need additional parking spaces. I mean, it's... <laughs> Who knows where that's going to go, but there's no question that is the reality of today's market. And I think in my experience with, you know, taxes going up with the, the tax assessors always saying that the building is more and more valuable, in particular the last several years. I mean, you're seeing, at least on my tax statements, properties are going up anywhere from five to 20% per year in, in assessed value. And part of that has to do with where rents have been kind of staying in line with property values and going up a lot too. But I've found that passing along a rent increase is a lot easier with uh, a new tenant than it is with a, an existing tenant. Um, you know, we've sat down with those folks and said, you know, hey, our, our taxes just went up 25%. We've even had it, we had one year our tax, and that was after, you know, buying and stabilizing property, our taxes went up like 75% in one year. Wow. Obviously, we can't pass that all along to a tenant, of course. Um, but if it was a property that, you know, the rents were really low and a new group is coming in, then they have no real starting point of where it should be. Like I'm paying a thousand. Now they're saying, I want, you know, hey, we need you to pay 1500. Um, good luck. That's not going to happen. But if it's a new group coming in, you know, and that's that rent is within pretty close to what market would bear, somebody would be happy to sign a lease at $1,500. Now, if it's a if it's a pre-existing tenant, so we use something in our lease that's just a rent escalator clause. And that, um, depending on the property or kind of what, expenses have been doing we that kind of goes in between maybe three and five percent per year so you know at the, the anniversary of the the lease start 12 months out um you know it might say in the lease that the the rent will be going up on that date to offset the you know obviously inflationary effects like taxes property taxes um keeping up the property as well as possible and uh you know, there's, there's, I mean, every possible cost driver out there goes up every year. Yeah. So that's been 
ever since kind of starting that, that's, you know, made those conversations a lot easier. And, and if you find that those escalators, in fact, are bringing your property above uh, market rent, your tenants will let you know. And then at that point, you know, you kind of have to go back and reassess. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely a good point to set the expectation early on, even at the very beginning of the lease, that rents will be going up at your lease renewal. So, yep. I know um, one thing I've done recently for when I send out lease renewals is I'll let tenants know what the rent's going to be potentially in the next over the next few years. Sure. And so it, it's uh, I'll explain in my letter that these are not guaranteed, but this is what we're expecting. So that, you know, when they see it come up, they're prepared for it. It's not a surprise. Yeah, that's a good way to do it. Just to kind of um, let, yeah, let people know as, as early as possible what to expect. Because, um, yeah, you're, you're kind of doing yourself a disservice if you don't do that. And, and then it's, it's going to be kind of an uphill battle. So you might as well fight it out really early on before, uh, before you have to get to that point. And we see a lot of other owners actually not raising rents um, because they don't want to have a turnover, which is a legitimate concern. But it, it you know, sometimes that goes on years and years and years, and you, you come across uh, a property that hasn't seen a rent increase for 10 years, and that's going to be a lot more of a shocker when the tenant gets the new lease renewal uh, than it would have been if it was spread out over time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think there's there's kind of two camps of landlords. There's those that want their tenants to pay market rent all the time. And if that means rents are going up, then they're going up every year. Then there's also the, the camp, camp B, let's say, is those that just want to retain those same tenants, not have any turnover and have like the most smooth sailing, you know, self-managing experience of all time, right? I think we're more in camp A and, and kind of, you know, Frankly, we need the numbers to work to make the investment make sense to continue to do it. Uh, you know, being that everybody's busy and you know we only have so much time. So I, I guess use you know our first property as an example. When we bought it, the I think the rent for the three bedroom was twelve ninety five a month. Um, we found the, these these two friends that ended up renting it out, and you know, they're happy as a clam to get it. Um, especially in the neighborhood it's at. It's uh, in like the Lyndhurst neighborhood, right behind South Lindale Liquor, like great neighborhood. It's got a Kowalski's within a block. It's got, you know, the liquor, awesome liquor store with an amazing like world-class wine and beer selection. And there's 24-hour fitness. There's a Starbucks. Like there's all kinds of cool stuff right there. So people were, they're super happy to, to get into that. Well, today that same unit runs for twenty two hundred, so it's nine hundred dollars more. Well, we could have sat at thirteen hundred for the last fifteen years and probably never lost a tenant, but um, <laughs> we'd be, you know, probably coming out of pocket big time. Uh, so, you know, I think rents kind of rents go up when expenses go up. Unfortunately, that's just the way it goes, and yeah. and it's almost uh you know, to have that housing stock and to keep the housing stock nice uh, and, and safe and clean and well, well maintained and to, you know, all the standards that this, that the municipality has that, uh, you know, that the tenants expect in that market, one thing follows the other. Yeah. Hey everybody, 
I'm interrupting the show quick to make sure you know about the North Star Real Estate Conference. If you're ready to take your real estate investing career to the next level, then you need to attend this two-day event on April 24th and 25th. We have both local and national experts presenting on finding deals, flipping houses, multifamily syndication, commercial investing, creative deal-making, and so much more. Whether you're brand new to real estate or you've been in it for years, there is something for everybody at this conference. In addition to the great content, we have prioritized networking so that you can grow your real estate team. So click the link in the show notes to buy your ticket today, and I'll see you there. Well, let's transition a little bit here. Uh, You mentioned earlier on in our conversation about paying attention to the income and the expenses. And so going over to the expense side of this equation, what are ways that you have been able to maybe decrease your maintenance costs? while not turning into, you know, a slumlord. Sure. Yeah, I I guess I've always had the philosophy that if things are maintained as well as possible, that it will, uh, it will justify a higher rent if we're, we're asking it, it will, um, I think it'll keep people happier and they'll want to live there longer. Um, So, so it'll help to minimize, you know, Turnover expenses can be astronomical in some cases, particularly if it's a tenant that's been in place for a long, long time and they maybe maybe haven't kept kept good um, care of things. So yeah, like I said, try to keep things as, as nice as possible. I think I'd also, by maintaining things as well, that, that can help to reduce your expenses just in general. But uh, some of the things we've done, I guess, you know, not ever putting any carpet in our units. Okay. You know, carpet cleaning, um, even if the carpet was just cleaned, who knows what's happened on that carpet or, you know, the, the pet smells and things like that. Uh, we've, we've always kept the policy of no smoking, not a protected class. So, you know, we, we put it in our ads. We, you know, you can go smoke outside, no problem, but don't bring it inside. If if there's evidence of smoking, there's a punitive um, provision in the lease for that. Mm-hmm. So um, also letting us know if there's any types of damage or if there's like water damage or something like that. We we had one one instance where a ceiling started getting in bad shape because the flashing next to a chimney was was not properly in in place it had kind of come loose or maybe the caulking had come loose and we eventually had to build rebuild the chimney from from the roof line up fix the ceiling uh you know inconvenience the tenants for probably a week and and it really all came down to them not telling us that there was a discoloration on the ceiling which eventually caused all these other issues so it cost us tons of money so like we put a provision in our lease that any kinds of you know visual um, evidence of of damage or, or anything that, that needs attention, people need to let us know as soon as possible. So I think, uh, as I mentioned before, you know your lease is everything in the relationship, and and ours has evolved over time. I mean, if if we had had the lease we have today back in two thousand six when we first bought uh, a duplex. And house hacked it. I mean, the tens of thousands of dollars that we would have saved out of pocket would have been ours to keep. <laughs> yeah. So, 
So uh, I guess one thing I'm hearing in that is uh, just making sure you respond to maintenance concerns promptly so that they don't spiral out of control and become worse than they would have otherwise been. Yep. Yeah, definitely that's that's important. Um, you know, some of those decisions like, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast that, you know, buying appliances that are known to have a good track record, that keeps your expenses lower because there's less maintenance needed and less less service calls. You know, uh, not having carpet, you know, really a personal preference, but I, you know, I would rather have hardwood floors and and have it in the lease that people need to use, um, you know, those uh, soft discs that uh, they can put under the furniture, yeah. felt pads. Yeah. Um, yeah, and just briefly about the appliances, um, sometimes fixing an appliance isn't that complicated, but there's only a select few people who know how to do it. Mm -hmm. And so you might get a, a large service call, even though it may take a few minutes to, to fix the problem. So getting a, like you've talked about, getting a, a brand that you know is solid and mm -hmm. it's going to be long lasting is really great. Yeah, you know, and I'm sure people have written books on it and things like that, but, you know, there's just little things you pick up along the way that uh, are really inexpensive and maybe take you a few minutes. So if you live close to the property and, you know, you tell the tenant you're going to stop, is it okay if I stop by between one and three? Let's say they've got a toilet that's leaking. Um, like the flapper's bad. I mean, the flapper's five bucks and it takes five minutes to, to fix it. Yeah. But while the thing's leaking... You know, water is not that expensive, but I think it's like four dollars for every seven hundred and fifty gallons. Well, if all of a sudden the water bill is a hundred dollars high, chances are they've got a leaky toilet, and you know they just either didn't know that it's a leaky toilet or whatever. And you know, you can spend five bucks and save you know a hundred dollars a month if you get that taken care of. So those like little things you kind of pick up along the way that you don't really need to call a handyman for. And you don't have a big enough portfolio to where you can you can do every every once in a while do something like that kind of bootstrap it and have a little bit more profitable operation. Um, some of those things are worth it. Uh, some of them like if it's it has to do with electricity or it has to do with other types of plumbing. I'm calling my electrician. I'm calling my plumber. I'm calling my uh, you know appliance maintenance person. And uh, and I would highly recommend you find somebody that's good. You keep them on your short list, and that's the person you call. I mean, I always call uh, Direct Home Appliance for my appliance stuff because they're Johnny on the spot. They do a great job. You know, they're probably probably competitive. I guess I haven't really shopped them around too much, but you know, there's been times where you know instead of them charging me three four hundred dollars and say, well, you know, I could I could do this and keep this thing going for a while instead of having to you know replace these parts and. Um, and, and they'll only charge me a hundred versus the four hundred. I know they're they're being honest with me and that they've got my my long term business in mind. Yeah. And uh, I think that's pretty valuable. How have you gone about um, finding these good vendors that you're working with now? If any of you use Yelp for restaurants, I mean, I, I've gotten to the point now where I think a lot of people have where you know if a restaurant is like four and a half stars, uh, it's probably pretty darn good. And, you know, if it's a three-star, it's probably like, yeah, I think I'll just keep looking. Um, I, you know, getting other people's referrals and recommendations, I think, is gold. 
if it's you know if it's somebody that's going to do like uh, I need to replumb a whole house, I want to get somebody that I've heard of before. You know, not just an A on Angie's list because frankly anybody can get an A on Angie's list or an A on Home Advisor. I think they just automatically do that for everybody, honestly. Because <laughs> um, I've I've hired some people off of those services, you know, not to throw any specific ones under the bus, but that haven't worked out well. That were, you know, not even not even a D. Um, I think, yeah, I, you know, if it's um, for a certain thing, I might call John Styles and say, John, do you have anybody that can do this particular thing? And if you've had a good experience, and odds are I'm going to have a good experience as well. Yeah. That's why I use Yelp as the example. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Referrals, recommendations. I mean, yeah, I think if you're gonna, you know, try to find a, a general contractor, you know, go to go to Home Depot at seven in the morning on a Saturday, and the guys that are there getting their supplies are probably pretty good. You know, somebody that doesn't get there till eleven a.m., they're probably you know hung over and sleeping, and <laughs> frankly. You, you know, they're probably not solid enough that you're going to want to hire that person for a big job. So, yeah, and, you know, we've talked about um, identifying problems at the property and, and addressing them quickly. With that said, how often do you recommend that you visit your properties? I would say outside of the, you know, the occasional um the occasional stop by is where we need to deal with something and we just kind of circumstantially stop by. Um, I would say the minimum would probably be at least a couple times a year. Um, I think once, once you kind of know the tenant and you know how they keep their property and you know that they're not, you know, breaking a bunch of rules or, uh, you know, destroying the property, taking bad care of it, then, you know, those folks, I would say, you know, less, less often than, you know, maybe quarterly. But if it's, if you've got a tenant, I think that is perhaps, uh, you know, if, especially if it's in a multifamily setting and you're getting complaints from other people like, hey, you know, they're always up at 2 a.m. blasting loud bass music uh, and we're trying to sleep and this is ridiculous. Um I think you gotta just kind of play it by ear, sure. but from a policy standpoint, you know, I would think at least a couple times a year just to make sure that there's not, um, you know, some kind of a maintenance issue that needs to be dealt with. Um, you know, what if there's water leaking out of a, you know, what got a toilet seal on a second floor and you've got, you know, discoloration in the ceiling? I mean, if the tenant doesn't tell you about it, it's not a bad idea to. You know, check it out. Yeah, lesson learned in that. <laughs> like I said before, you might have had that experience, huh? Well, it sounds like most of your time being an owner, you've had some good experiences. But I, I know that there's some uh, challenges to being a landlord. Uh, what would be maybe a experience or a story that you could share, just about um, some surprises and, and something that maybe a, a non-landlord wouldn't have otherwise experienced here? Sure. A uh, couple things there. I've, I've kind of realized that I think any property you buy um, is going to have some kind of a an interesting feature or something that you just didn't expect. A um, couple examples would be the first duplex, I've, the first property I ever bought, the duplex uh, 
at 53rd and Aldrich. It has a crawl space underneath underneath one of the bedrooms on the first floor, and there's a uh, there's a six-cylinder engine block inside that uh, crawl space. So you open up this like little door that's about this tall uh, from the outside of the house, and and it goes directly into the crawl space underneath this bedroom. And somebody at some point thought it was a good idea to take a six-cylinder engine block and dispose of it underneath the crawl space. So that was kind of a head scratcher. We we were gonna get it out of there, but realized we would destroy that little door frame, and it would just so it's still there, you know, 15 years later. Um, another example of something odd: we were renovating the top floor of our triplex in Uptown, and we found a couple of things. One was um, like this these weird circus and clown hats that were inside of the the wall. The, like the creepiest, some of the creepiest stuff I've ever found just was inside this wall. There's a bunch of newspaper in there from probably the early 70s. Maybe it was used for insulation. Uh, I found a, a bottle from probably the 1920s or earlier that was, uh, I'm trying to think of what the drug was. I think it was like uh, like opium. It was, or, sorry, it was morphine. There was, there was a morphine bottle that looked like an old medical bottle, probably something you could have gotten over the counter back a hundred years ago. Well, I found it above some uh, some ceiling panels. Okay. Like it just just some random stuff that you would find. Um, I, I guess more that would hit your pocketbook. I mean, there's certain things that you know you might have to repair that you weren't expecting, and I guess it's always a good idea to just get a professional property inspector, especially if you haven't looked at hundreds or, th or thousands of properties over your career, um, you know, before you buy, it's not a bad idea to pay somebody $500 to, um, you know, help you avoid some five-figure expenses. One example, there was another triplex in, in Uptown that we were looking at. It had a, it had kind of like an egress stack built behind the building that was, you know, like a door outside and then there were stairways up and it was all enclosed. And it was, you know, basically the way that, that they could make it into a triplex, right? Well, we hired an inspector, it was maybe $500. Obviously, we didn't buy the property after we found this out, but what it was is that that stack didn't have a foundation. He took a, you know, he took like a, a screwdriver and he stuck it in right next to the foundation. And instead of it hitting, you know, like concrete, it just went right underneath the, the wall. He said, he said, okay, take a look at this crack up here. One inside, there was this giant crack. I mean, the whole stack was starting to disconnect from the house because it wasn't even on a footing. Okay. And that he said, I said, well, what would that cost us if we hadn't found that? Oh, probably like forty thousand dollars to like, you know, put a crack foundation under this. Hmm. So, um, yeah, word of the wise, maybe not your exact question, but um, if you don't know, hire a professional. Yeah. to do some due diligence and uh and i think you save way more money than you spend when you use proper professionals for yeah. certain things well and even as a real estate agent or even as a active real estate investor you're you're maybe not uh always focused in on what an inspector will be able to find so um it's definitely worth getting an inspection when you're going to buy a property yeah um, before we get into some of the, our closing questions, did you have any uh, final comments about just approaching 
rental properties with a, a business planning mindset and just being proactive about the way we approach our properties rather than reactive. Yeah, I, I think I think realistically, a lot of municipalities require, you know, like an annual um, or sometimes biannual, I guess in the case of boilers, like having the, the, uh, the backflow system checked every three years and things like that. You know, I think, I think just keeping things at least on on that minimum um, rotation of of having professionals come in and check those systems is good. And and I know some landlords that they try to save, you know, they're like stepping over dollars to pick up pennies by not keeping things maintained. Um, they they don't, you know, on a on a turnover like they would rather have the tenants do all the cleaning, which I think tenants should do some cleaning and so forth that you know, not get deductions on their security deposits. Uh, we've we found that to be a good policy and to let them know well in advance so that they're not cleaning, you know, 48 hours before they move out. But, you know, we'll like we'll have professional cleaning crews come through and com- clean everything completely anyways. And I think in in that process, those cleaning companies are, are able to help identify if there's if there's certain types of things that uh, need to be adjusted or dealt with. Um, yeah, I think I think visiting your property on a fairly regular basis, even if it's not just incidental, and coming over to you know fix a you know, like a toilet flapper, but but to yeah check to go there on a fairly you know somewhat regular basis is smart, so that you you know know that your property is not becoming dilapidated. Um, you know, having uh, having a lawn service that that mows the lawn. Uh, maybe a snow removal service that keeps the, the sidewalks, you know, and also your liability lower um, is, is a good idea. Probably the most, I'd say the biggest thing I could say for really any investor is, especially if you self-manage, would be to be hyper vigilant about who you rent to. So, you know, we use uh, all completely objective systems but we use uh like rental history reports to to look at you know verifying employment making sure that that person does meet those objective criteria such as you know three times rent um so that we know they can afford it um things like that uh you know we'll we'll make sure that they're employed well if they're not employed and they you know let's say they're just coming out of college and they're about to get a job will require a double security deposit. Um, we, we have stopped doing that because now the maximum is one month. But uh, but we did that for a while. Just, you know, we, we held it until they got a job and then they would get that half of that back. Um, but, you know, just, just knowing who you're renting to and making sure that your objective criteria are all met and, and not, not bending to that. You know, if you can't rent it out, then your price is too high. Right? Somebody's going to want it, especially if it's wealth wealth kept. The decisions you made with the property are, like I said, to my philosophy, something that I would want to live with myself. Um, and and hopefully, then having a, a pretty seamless and, and easy time as a landlord, as opposed to somebody who you know <laughs> will just rent to the first person that that applies and. Maybe they don't meet those criteria, and therefore they can't pay rent. They take poor care of it, and things like that. Yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. I know that uh, when I've looked at properties where the owner didn't pay much attention to the screening process, those are most likely the cases that they have a bad situation with the tenant where they're not paying or they're damaging the property. So that uh, leasing process is really important. Definitely. Um, so one of the things I want to just ask you about is in your experience, how are you seeing technology changing uh, the rental experience, either at your properties or just properties you've heard of and going into the future here? Sure. Yeah, there's quite a few. I mean, um, I kind of mentioned before, you know, we put in uh, smart thermostats now in all of our rental units. I think we have a couple that we haven't done that to yet, but um, like Nest as an example, I don't know all the different ones out there, but I'm quite familiar with Nest. I think we have nine or 10 of them in our different units, uh, seven or eight. It doesn't matter, but quite a few. Um, I've installed them all myself. They're easy. They take like 10, 15 minutes to install, but, um, you know, like with a smart thermostat, I would say to people that aren't familiar with it, instead of waking up in the morning and coming, coming out of your bedroom and going, oh, it's cold out, it's cold in here, and you turn the heat up, the smart thermostat kind of, it starts to learn your, when you're going to walk out of your room, it's already warm, it's already comfortable when you walk out. It also knows that you probably sleep from 11 to 7, and so the thermostat then drops down to a sleeping temperature between 11 and 7, so you're not wasting energy. So like Nest claims, I think, a 9% uh, energy savings. Not only that, but it also allows you to, let's say you're out of town and you've got it at 50 degrees in your place, and you want it to be comfortable and eat at home, you can go on your phone and just say, I want it at 60, 68, and it'll be 68 degrees when you get home. So you saved energy the whole time you're out of town, and now it's still comfortable because of technology. So thermostats, I think, are huge. Um, Before you mention anything else, um, with smart thermostats, are those typically just controlled by the tenants, or do you as a landlord get access to that and kind of monitor your portfolio and the temperatures that are they're keeping yeah I guess I mean for us um, we don't we don't monitor them at all uh, we have one at our own house that we you know keep track of we've had some renovations in the past you know that were vacant while the renovations happening and the thermostat will be in there and we'll you know we'll connect it during that time so we can control that but when a tenant is there I mean uh, I guess from a philosophical standpoint that's kind of their business we don't really need to know yeah. what's going on and and you know, typically if it's, um, if the utilities are separated, which hopefully they are, then the tenant can have it at 90 degrees all the time if they really want to, but they're going to pay for it, uh, or 50 degrees all the time if they want to have blankets and sweatshirts on all the time. Totally depends. Um, but, uh, okay, that makes sense. I, I just read an article that Pete, that it's, it was, I remember it exactly. It was like 70.5% of people, of, of renters, um, are interested in smart thermostat technology, and they're willing to spend about $30 a month for, for that feature. Okay. Um, I mean, think about that. It's like a $200 device that could make you $30 a month. Like, you know, the payoff at that point would be, what, six and a half months? So to me, it's kind of a no-brainer. They're saving electricity um they're more comfortable when they come home and when they wake up or you know 
as they, how they live their life there. Um, so yeah, that's, that's one big one. Um, I, I actually misplaced my, my key, but, uh, I, I literally have my whole portfolio on, I've got my car key fob and I've got my, my portfolio is, is one master key. Okay. So to use that kind of key technology to where if I need to get into a building, I don't have to look through like 40 keys anymore. Um, I mean, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. I think smart lighting is, is pretty awesome. Um, you know, obviously electronic rent payment, you know, that's a technology that's, that's fantastic and, and can automate uh, a, a really big workflow process that's something that you would normally need to collect rent or have people mail it to you. Um, you just don't need to do that anymore. Yeah. Very good. Well, Justin, I think we've covered quite a bit here today, and I wanted to uh, ask you a couple of questions about yourself to let the audience get to know you better. Sure. Um, so can you tell us why do you get up in the morning? <laughs> uh well, yeah, I mean, my, my big why, I guess, is kind of what people talk about, right? You know, why do you get into real estate investing is maybe another question, that another way you could ask it. Um, but uh, yeah, my big why is, is my family and trying to get to a point where I can, um, you know, where my properties will will support our lifestyle and, and I can I can do kind of some of the you know, the dad things and the husband things that I've always wanted to do and I've always envisioned. So I want to be a coach. I want to be a good husband. I want to bring my wife on date night, you know, more than once a month, uh, things like that. Um, you know, we'd like to travel, we'd like to do a lot of, a lot of things like that just to, you know, feel like we're, we're retired early. And I think we're, we're close to that. Um, but yeah, I've got three little boys, um, wonderful wife of 11 years. Uh, so yeah, my, my family, I mean, my friends, my extended family, people I care about, um, you know, I, I'm probably not the hardest worker in the world, but, um, I mean, I definitely, you know, want to be successful and, uh, and just bring home the bacon, but also be able to kind of enjoy, you know, uh, life and not, not just, you know, do the, the typical, retire at 65 and then, you know, die at 75. I'd like to <laughs> be done with all that stuff well in advance of that. So, um, okay. that kind of answer your question. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Very good. How about you? <laughs> My why, um, I would say it's similar to yours. Uh, I would sum it up in my God, uh, my family, and then my passion for, for be, six, being successful in life. So, but that's kind of a short summary of it. Uh, perfect. Um, and then another question I want to ask you is, is just what's an event or a person in your past that was really monumental in changing you or making you who you are today? Oh, monumental. That's a, it's a big question. Um, I, I mean, I guess my, you know, my parents are, were just such a big influence on me. They, uh, they both came from, you know, prior to themselves going to college, they came from kind of blue collar families. My mom grew up on a farm and picked pickles for like, I don't know, Gedney or something like that for like, I think it was like a hundred pickles for a penny. I mean, it was, it was like awful, awful pay. 
and you know, she was lucky if she got a dolly for Christmas. And my my dad's parents were um, uh, one of them worked in a tire factory, so they both ended up um, you know going to school, and they both were were healthcare professionals. And so, um, you know, they instill a lot of values of just hard work and, you know, family first and things like that. Um, so, so definitely my parents, I mean, if I had to, you know, I've had some mentors along the way, uh, with, with real estate investing, but, uh, you know, I've, I would say probably the biggest, like mind shift was reading rich dad, poor dad, probably in 2004 or five, yeah. you know, realizing how instead of spending your money on like a bunch of junk, if you, if you save money and put it into assets that will pay you at the end of the month, instead of, you know, a car payment taking $500 a month out of your pocket, uh, if you buy an asset like a duplex or something else that can put $500 a month in your pocket, you know, how many times could you do that? And how quickly could that help you become free from, uh, the, you know, kind of the, financial treadmill that a lot of people are on or the rat race as, they, yeah. as Kiyosaki calls it. So, I mean, that, that book was huge. I mean, I could point to, you know, a couple dozen other, you know, influential books, but yeah, that was, that was a big one that kind of was a game changer for me. Yeah. And that I, I wish like everybody I knew would just go out and buy that book. Right. If, if you want a copy, uh, reach out to me. Uh, you can either get my info in the show notes. I'll get you a copy of that book. It'll change your life. Well, that is my next question. How can people get in touch with you if they'd like to get the book? <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid I just wrote a check that my backside can't cash. No, I, I, no, I will honor that. Um, so, yeah, you can get me on LinkedIn, Justin Hennig, H-E-N-N-I-G, um, or uh, my email is jhennig at lynhurstholdings.com. That's L-Y-N-N-H-U-R-S-T holdings. Um, I'm on Facebook. Uh, or you can call my cell phone. I'm, I'm open to that. 612-401-0007. Um, so yeah, reach out. Wonderful. All right. Well, again, Justin, I appreciate you coming in today and uh, sharing your experience and your story with the audience. I know that there's a lot of great tips that we all were able to take out of here. Um, as a token Thanks. of my appreciation, I just want to give you this official Maximizing Your Property Value mug. I love it. I know that's why you actually came here today. It's <laughs> <laughs> the only reason. <laughs> so, and uh, I always am asking, are you more likely to put hot chocolate, coffee, tea, or something else in there? Oh, definitely coffee. All right. Maybe tea in the afternoon. <laughs> so. Sounds good. All right, Thanks, Justin. Thank you so much. And to our audience, thank you for tuning in. I hope you got something out of this. Uh, if you did, be sure to go to iTunes uh, and leave us a radio review. We would appreciate that. And, of course, share it out with somebody else on social media just to uh, spread the love. So. Leave a review for Styles. He's doing a great job, and that really does make a big difference when people are looking for podcasts to listen to. I mean, I'm one out of the, you know, what, four people or five that are on there. It should be up to 100 by next week, so it's, it'll take you two seconds John will appreciate it, and you'll feel good, and you'll sleep better that night. Yeah, well, thank you so much. And we'll catch you next time. Make it a great one.
You too. The opinions shared on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be taken as a solicitation for representation or investment in any specific offering. Please consult with your financial, legal, tax, and real estate advisor before making any investment decisions. John Stiles is a licensed Minnesota real estate agent with Bridge Realty. Thanks for tuning in to Maximizing Your Property Value, the apartment owner's guide to operating rental properties as a successful business. If you're considering scaling up, downsizing, or right-sizing your real estate investment portfolio, it's important to know how to determine your property's value in today's market. That's why I've put together a free ebook for you called How to Calculate Your Investment Property's Value. To get your copy, go to www.realestatestyles.com forward slash value. Now, if you found any value in today's show, be sure to subscribe to our email newsletter, YouTube channel, and podcast through your favorite podcast player. All the links are in the show notes. And would you do me a big favor? Help me get the word out about this show by sharing with your friends on Facebook and LinkedIn. And lastly, we appreciate your five-star rating on iTunes. I really appreciate you and wish you the best in your real estate investing career. Signing off, I'm John Stiles with Bridge Realty. Make it a great day.